Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Hospitality TV. On today's podcast, we're sharing an audio clip from a seminar that we did a couple days ago at Born and Raised here in San Diego. We had Master Sommelier Joshua Orr come in and do an introduction to wine tasting for a group of industry people um, from a bunch of different restaurants here in San Diego. We had a great turnout. Uh, it was an awesome event. I was listening to the audio uh, format of it later in the evening and can't believe how many good little nuggets are in this podcast. Um, Josh basically came in and gave a really good introduction on how to approach sparkling wines, white wines, red wines, even dessert slash fortified wines. Um, so anybody who's kind of looking for just a little refresher on how to do this and maybe build your vocabulary around describing wines in a basic form. This isn't in the court of master sommelier setup or grid. This is more of an approach on the things that you're looking for to describe these wines, how they differentiate themselves from other styles, and ultimately how you would describe them to a guest. Um, so I think Josh did an amazing job with this, and I hope this is useful to you. Uh, if you are in San Diego and work in the hospitality industry in any way, shape, or form, we actually have a Facebook group called Next Level Dash SD Service Professionals. Um, I'm posting certain things there, or more, I'm posting invites there for events like this. Um, so make sure to join that group and we can keep you in the loop about some cool things like that uh, that are happening. Um, lastly, I'd appreciate your feedback. You can always reach out to me directly. You can DM me on Instagram at HospitalityV. Uh, I'd love your input on what you think about events like this. We're doing a bunch more of these things. We have a lot lined up. Um, we have an incredible one with uh, the Port Ambassador for Ramos Pinto coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, and we're looking to do more things like how to success successfully run a beverage program or wine program or how to positively affect culture in your restaurant or hotel group um, and things like this. So I'd love to see if you guys had any suggestions on any themes like that that you would like to see on this podcast. Um, and as always, please make sure to follow us, leave a rating on iTunes. Uh, it means a lot. It helps get the ratings up and the rankings up. Um, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hospitality TV. I hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, so um, Raphael approached me about this and I thought it was an awesome idea because I've been a part of this group uh, probably I think since his inception when he, when he kind of fostered the idea. And one of the jokes I always talk about is that prior to working here, I started my career in Vegas. And one of my mentors, when he heard I was moving to San Diego, was like, you know, that's where sommeliers go to die, right? And this was circa 2010. So at that point, the industry was still definitely um, in its, not really in its infancy, but not where it is now. And so I was happy when I got here to see that there was, you know, life to it. There was energy. The, the craft cocktail side was blowing up. The beer side was blowing up and the wine was there kind of trailing behind the other two. And it's been really fun to see over the last 10 years and go back to him and be like, hey, so your, your thoughts on San Diego? Completely off basis. Um, so I love that you guys are out doing this because it shows that there is a very strong pulse to the community in San Diego and that people are interested in more than just their niche or whatever their thing is. And so I appreciate and, and applaud you guys for coming out. So hopefully I can give you some relevant and, and uh, useful information with today. Um, Rafa did let me uh, do it blind, which I appreciate that because I think it has a, a fun effect in the regard that you're not influenced by label or whatever you know or don't know about what is being poured in front of you. Um, well, he did mention the CMS, 
I'm happy to field questions and in, in what capacity that I can for any other type of certification you're pursuing. Today's tasting, while not directly like a CMS tasting, is more geared towards, when Rafa and I were brainstorming on it, um, if you were to be handed, for those of you who aren't already in charge of it, if you were to be handed a wine program right now and had to go start tasting with um, suppliers or, or reps or specialists, um, what are some tools and things to look for to have going into that capacity or things to think about? Or even if you're trying to give insight to your manager or, or to your wine director on things that you like and how it might be appropriate for your guests. So that's kind of how we're structuring it. So you'll see there'll be four stages as we go through it. Obviously, first and foremost, you always got to start off with bubbles. That's just a rule. Um, and then we're going to go from there. We're going to do a couple of whites. We're going to do some reds. And then at the end, we'll finish with fortifieds because fortifieds get overlooked a lot and aren't talked about too often. So it's something that whether it's it's lack of experience or lack of interest, I still feel like fortifieds garner um, a little bit of attention, um, at least to, to taste and understand the different styles and what they bring to the table. So you will be doing all of this blind. Um, and please chime in. I'm happy to sit here and talk the whole time. I'll, I'll talk your ears off, but I love conversation and engaging and everybody putting their own insight. Um, I'm not going to call you out and be like, tell me the exact condition of what type of pair this is in this wine. Go. You know, and that's not what it's about. It's more, it's more broad strokes and understanding what went into making the wines the, the way that they are. Um, so before we get started and dive in, any questions for me just on what's been discussed or what we're doing or in general or you want to talk about the weather and the, uh, the winds, anything like that before we dive in? Because we only have, I think it's, we're plan it's slated to go for uh, 90 minutes at most, right? We're shooting for 1.30, yes. Okay, Cause, and we've got 10 wines, so I don't want to waste your guys' time. Um, all right, so the process as we go through this. Um, what I want you guys to do is I'll give you a little bit of time with both of the wines or in the case of the next flights with each of the three And I want you to just kind of think about some general notes that we can have a little bit of a discussion on and they don't have to be Like super specific more of you know I prefer this one because or I There's a certain aroma in this that reminds me of this or I think this is made in this manner Just to help facilitate discussion and I'll ask those questions and kind of lead in that way um, but it's meant to give you um, experience with different styles of wine. So obviously you have sparkling in front of you. Um, does anybody care to chime in with the different styles of sparkling that are available out there? So what's the easiest one? Real quick. Champagne, Champagne method. Uh, anybody care to share any other types? San Diego is a, a hotbed for a certain style. It's very trendy in the natty wine world. Uh, everybody heard of Pet Nat? Or Petillant Naturalement, which is essentially halfway through the champagne process. Uh, somebody said Prosecco. Uh, what's the method used in Prosecco? How and why, exactly, how and why is it different from Champagne? Charmat method. Um, uh, any others? Hmm? Cava? How's Cava made? No, Champagne method. And then if you ever see California labels that say either traditional method, that's Champagne method, and then there's a few producers that actually got grandfathered in and had enough I don't know, cojones or whatever to stand up to the champignois, they can still put California champagne on the label. Um, if you don't know what the reference is with that, the champagne governing body is insane in terms of how they pursue protection of that word. I've heard stories of like people having champagne flavored soap and getting cease and desist letters. So they protect it to a, I mean, they have a massive amount of uh, dollars to play with that, but their legal team is no joke. And so that's why you have all sorts of different terms like champagne method, traditional method. Uh, in Italian, it's metodo tradizionale, um, which is what you'd see. 
Um, so why don't you guys take a minute and, and smell and taste the wines, and then we'll start talking about them. Sound good? Cool. What are some initial thoughts? Anybody have anything that just jumped out right away? And it's anything from texture to uh, flavor profile to this is gross, this is delicious, to this is completely way too dry, this is maybe slightly sweet. Any, any thoughts so far? If I were to guess, I'd say one was Charmant, two was uh, traditional. Okay. A lot more like yeast contact, uh, or least contact, yeast break up flavors on two, a lot more like, um, I feel like one more note, or like less, less second note, more like one note on the first one. It's more primary. Okay, so the comments uh, from up here were, uh, he thinks that wine one is Charmant method, uh, which would be associated with what style of wine? Yeah. Uh, wine two, he thinks is uh, traditional method. So he's not he's not divulging where he thinks it's from, but he thinks it's traditional method or champagne method. Um, and he was saying that the second wine has more um, lees contact or secondary characters. Does everybody understand what that means? Do you know what lees are? Lees are essentially a fancy term that you can use at a table for yeast cells that have died. Um, so they keep them in champagne and leave champagne in contact or a, a champagne method uh, wine in contact with the lees over a prolonged period of time. And that's where you get those bakery type flavors. So your brioche, your toasted bread, your almond, your, your, there's even like vanilla and yogurty tones. And you see the use of lees in general in a lot of uh, wines in particular, white wines and sparkling wines. Because not only does it add some of those um, pleasing flavors, it also is important from a textural standpoint. Um, for example, Pinot Grigio is usually a wine that is very lees driven because if you didn't have the lees, Pinot Grigio is very bitter. So it softens up front and then finishes with a bitter part that almost seems um, refreshing. It's kind of along the lines of like a, a Negroni. Hits you with the fruit up front and then the, the bitter aspect of it cleans it up and makes it not taste cloying. So lees is something that, um, while not immediately easily understood, after a bit of time you realize how much it plays a role in a lot of different wines across the board. It's very important for champagne. Um, one quick question, how are the bubbles, uh, how do they get in there? in either method. Anybody care to venture and talk about it? Uh, mm-hmm. So secondary fermentation being that they're not injecting it with bubbles, right? It is a natural product. Um, so they leave a little sugar in the bottle, the yeast that are still alive, when it's under pressure, the byproduct of yeast consuming sugar is alcohol and CO2. And so normally that's if you go to a winery during fermentation, um, they may not take you down in the caves if they're fermenting down in there because the tanks or the barrels are emitting a lot of CO2 and you can asphyxiate. In a uh, sparkling wine, you top it and keep a cap on, the bubbles get forced into solution. And so that's how it becomes carbonated naturally as opposed to um, like say Andre um, that you can get at your friendly neighborhood Costco or wherever, that's typically injected with CO2 like soda. Um, how does that play out in sparkling wine? Anybody care to talk about that? It's a big thing as far as what? Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. they, it's called the mousse, so that when they pour it, the, the bubbles that come up, and then also how it feels on your palate, the mousse and the texture. Um, you notice how both of these wines, there's a very soft texture. There's two ways that they got to that. They're not the same way of getting to that texture. The second wine is a traditional method wine, so you are correct, so that comes from autolysis, which is the use of lees over a long period of time, and then aging in a cold environment 
over a slow, long period of time. So small bubbles are important because they're good, and soft bubbles are important because they're good. If you went and had soda water right after having this, you'd notice a distinct difference in texture. And that's one of the signs of a high quality sparkling wine. It's also why high quality sparkling wine is hard to make and tends to be expensive. There's a lot of little things that go into your Vouv or your Tattinger or your Perrier Jouet tasting as easy drinking as it does. Um, uh, any, anybody care to guess why wine one has a very soft texture to it? It's different, it's not the same as far as reasoning. So wine one is, uh, you're correct in that it's Charmat method, but uh, anybody get a little more residual sugar? Tastes sweeter? Not only is it fruitier, but there is residual sugar here, which is harder to detect in sparkling because of the bubbles. So you think about like 7-Up or Coca-Cola, when they go flat, you can taste them, they're much sweeter. But when you have them, when you fresh open the can, they don't taste as sweet, right? Because the bubbles kind of mask that. So wine one is what? Prosecco, correct. Wine two, anybody care to guess? This is not an easy one. Pet nat? Too much bubbles. So pet nat is, is semi-sparkling, so it would dissipate really quickly. Kind of like if you had like a vino verde and you have bubbles at the start, but then after you swirl your glass, they go away. This is full-blown like six atmospheres of pressure. So this is Champagne method, but the, the why I have a smirk is because where it's from. It's not from Champagne. French Accorda, no. Good guess though. Uh, Cremant, good guess. Cremant is what, guys? Cremant is champagne-style wine, but from elsewhere in France. That's a good one. Thank you for saying that. Because if you want champagne method, but you don't want to pay champagne prices, Cremant is a great place to go. This is British Bubbles, wine too. So I thought it'd be fun to introduce you guys to that. Um, uh, it's not something that's on everyone's radar. It's pretty progressive, but the British... Uh, much to some people's chagrin, have kind of caught lightning in a bottle with, uh, with their sparkling wines. They didn't used to be able to, or they didn't try, I guess. Maybe they always were able to um, produce high-quality wines. They used a lot of, of crosses and hybrids and didn't make good wine. It took an American couple who were either dumb enough or brash enough um, to, uh, at that point, ask the French what they should grow. And the French told them champagne grapes. They did it. They produced a really high-quality sparkling wine in the early 90s and kind of caught the world off guard and they were like, what is this? And so that producer was Nye Timber and they're kind of the forefather of the, the British sparkling movement. But they've only been around since the early 90s and it's one of the hottest segments as far as quality wines. If you're talking things that are trending uh, in the world, it's really cool to see what Great Britain has done. Um, and of course the British will tell you how great it is. They won't, they won't miss a chance of that, but it actually, um, they make good delicious stuff. So this is a producer called Gusborn in wine too. Um, it's one of the few that is allowed by the Queen to be poured at royal events, so they're pretty good quality. Um, wine one is Prosecco, everyday normal Prosecco. So Prosecco is made in the Charmat method. What's important there is fruit forward and style. That's why you have um, Bellinis with Prosecco. It's meant to be served and, and um, sent to market and consumed quickly. So they make it in a very fresh upfront style because you want that peach and pear character to be bright and refreshing. And it's not so much about those secondary characters that come with, like the Gusborn is um, three years on the lees. That's a long time to wait to send something to market if you're looking for cash flow. Whereas the Prosecco, they can stick it in a tank in the Charmat method and just bottle as they need it constantly. That's much easier for cash flow. Um, questions for me? That was a lot of information really quickly. Yes? 
So the popular answer that's pretty um, easy to grasp onto, grasp onto is they do have uh, parts of the region that have the same soil breakdown as Champagne. So it's like a belt that goes through the English Channel and comes up in like the cliffs of Dover, the white cliffs of Dover. Yeah. So where the wines come from is south of London in the Kent and Sussex area. But they do have other soils that are mixes of clay and limestone. There's pockets of chalk, and that's kind of what everybody's latched onto and will tell you. But it's not uniform chalk. Um, this also, they use Burgundy clones. Uh, they don't use Champagne clones because they decided Burgundy would be a little better for their area. So that's a little reason why there's a touch more fruit character to it. But um, all in all, I think it's a well-made um, traditional method wine. Um, and then the Prosecco, I think, is a great example of what Prosecco brings to the table. I hope that gave nice contrast for you guys. Especially as they were slightly warmer, you really get the, the sweetness and the fruit forwardness of Prosecco versus your bakery characteristic of sparkling. Any other questions? Cool, should we move on to some whites? All right, either, either uh, shotgun it or dump it. So we're gonna do three whites, and as you dig into them, uh, you'll see there's not necessarily a theme, but um, an attempt to, uh, to portray uh, certain things. So hopefully they stand out. Um, I'll give you guys a little bit longer with these because I think they warrant it. Um, I don't want to give you too much information because I don't want to lead the witness, but um, hopefully you guys are able to come up with uh, some of the stuff I'm looking for. As far as tasting a wine, how many people in here would have, have never actually like done a blind tasting or had somebody talk to them about why and what you do with tasting a wine? Is there anybody or is everybody fairly familiar with it in the process? Good. It's an experienced group. Um, so like things to look for, everybody's favorite question is what, you know, let's talk about the legs of the wine. And that's actually one of the least useful terms when you're not getting really scientific. Um, there's a lot to it in terms of like the wine and the alcohol in the wine and its interaction with the, the glass and that type of thing. But when you're talking to a normal person, they don't want to hear about that. So it's funny how everybody goes right to the legs. Why anybody care to venture a guess why legs were important in the past and why that comment has kind of evolved? It has something to do with a little bit of the evolution of the beverage industry. So wines, especially in the old world, vintage is important, right? More so, the new world is a little more even keeled. It's kind of like, well, it was warm, but it wasn't hot. You know, like California, we always have sunshine. But in the likes of Burgundy or Bordeaux or Chianti, um, there was a good half of a decade that they might not be able to produce wine. So legs generally indicate alcohol and color extraction. So um, to dumb it down real simple, if you had a wine with good legs and good color, you had a good vintage. So that's where that kind of evolved from in the past is, oh, this has great legs because that means Typically, if it's that case, it's not going to be a thin, watery wine. It's going to have some substance to it. And that provided a perceived value and, and uh, some visual, I guess, it was visually pleasing to the people who were drinking it. Um, uh, and so that, for me, is always where, at least if I can get, spit that out in a small amount to somebody who's asking about legs. Um, color. Color can tell you things as far as climate. Like, is it, does it have green tones? Might indicate a cool climate. Might indicate a younger wine. Does it have golden tones to it? That can indicate age. It can indicate um, aging vessel. Whether it was now, it's very appropriate to talk about um, concrete or oak or amphora. What's an amphora? They're ancient clay pots that they used to use. It's very popular to talk about it in terms of Georgian wines. Um, 
Amphora wines, if they've really spent a long time in Amphora, tend to me to come out looking like iced tea. They're orange, they're almost like a whiskey character. Um, but you do have some wines that spend a small amount of time in Amphora and they'll kind of blend to create a more complex wine. So same grape, same bottling, but part of it was done maybe in stainless, part of it was done in concrete, and that's all the winemaker using their palate to, to complicate things. Um, other things color can indicate, um, we talked about age, we talked about aging vessel. Um, as far as smell, 90% of what you're getting from the wine, as far as flavor goes, is either done through your nose or retronasally. When you talk about tasting, you're actually tasting on the, the backside of, of your nose um, via the aromas volatilizing or becoming aromatic in your mouth. That's why something that's warmer tastes more flavorful than something that's really cold. Um, thus why uh, the mountains need to be blue on a certain high-profile beer because at that point you don't want a whole lot of things being volatilized. You want it to taste crisp, refreshing, and don't let it warm up. Um, so most of what you're tasting beyond, what are the five common tastes that you actually talk about on the palate? You guys should have these real quick. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami. And apparently there's a couple others, but I haven't delved that far in. So if you actually took a white wine of similar body and weight to a red wine, put them in a dark glass, and then plugged your nose and tried to taste them and figure out which was which, you can't at that point deduce anything retronasally. It's amazing how difficult that is. I encourage you to try it if you get the chance, but you have to think about like, you can't take a Sauv Blanc and a Cabernet. It would have to be more along the lines of like Chardonnay and Cabernet, something similar in weight. And then plug your nose and try to figure out which is which if they're at the same temp. It's way more difficult than it, it looks on paper because if you're not influenced by the color of the wine, you have a dark glass um, and you can't taste anything from the sense of aromas, um, all you're going off of that point is literally sour, bitter, salty, sweet, uh, and umami. And so that was always a fun exercise. Um, all right, are all the whites poured? All right, guys, go ahead and dig in. I'll give you a few minutes and then we'll talk about them. All right. Let's get started. Okay, so any initial thoughts? Anybody care to comment out of the gate? Nice. A lot of chalkiness on wine too? Okay. Okay, so a little evidence of lees on one, and then super low acidity and very sweet on three. Okay, cool. Um, I forgot to do this with the previous, but uh, what about food pairings? Anything in particular that jumps out for wine one, thinking in the capacity of using it in a restaurant? What, uh, we'll go through each of them, so have some ideas for two and three as well, but where does, where does wine one, uh, what are you envisioning in your head that makes you hungry and thirsty? Shellfish? Yeah, I think that's a good call. Sashimi, yes. Anything else? It goes with a lot of stuff. It's got good acid to it. That's kind of what I was getting to. So wine one is pretty versatile. It's, it's a good safe bet kind of wine in that it has uh, some neutrality to it. Um, so it would, it, would, it would satisfy in a lot of different situations. Um, and then you made the comment it has higher acid. I think that's important. All right, what about wine two? Thoughts on food? Mm -hmm. So, so what food-wise would you want to do with it? Yeah, 
fried food, I like that. Roasted chicken, heartier fish. With wines like this, it's always um, like uh, lobster po'boys, like that kind of thing, like a sandwich. Um, popcorn, weirdly. Encourage you to try that. All right, what about three? Here's the one that's gonna make you guys all sweat and make you earn your money. Yep, that's the easy way out, right? Spicy food. Anything in particular? Yeah, Thai food. That's that's uh, certainly where a wine like this is at home. Uh, why is that, guys? For those who don't know, why would a, why would a wine such as Wine Three, whatever the structure is to it, do well with spice? Yeah, and so sugar. What does sugar counteract? Spice, right? They kind of balance each other out nicely. Similar, like for those of you who are involved in this restaurant, what's one of your biggest staples of food and wine pairing in Born and Raised? Tannins and fat. Why does Cabernet kill it at a steakhouse? Because you get a ribeye and you get a big Cabernet with a lot of oaky tannins and the two make for a just ridiculous pairing of, it's, it's what I always look for, which is that, I joke and call it the vicious cycle. So you end up having a bite of food, makes you want to have a sip of wine. Sip of wine goes down really easy, cleans your palate, makes you want to have another bite of food. And then food makes you want to have another sip of wine and why it's vicious is because at the end you're out of both and you want more. And so that's what I always try to search for is that that cycle of where they complement each other, making you want to go back and forth. Um, interestingly, if you ever want to play this game with food and wine pairings, there's two routes you can go. Um, and sometimes, like in the case of, of uh, you know, Thai food and uh, wine three, it's uh, the wine makes the food taste better, but you can also have the reverse, whereas if you had um, some food, it would make the wine taste better, but maybe not the other way. It's kind of a weird thing to visualize or conceptualize right now, but if you had a couple things of food in front of you, you could see like, does a sip of wine make my you know, scallop taste better? Or does the scallop make the wine taste better? It's not always both ways, which is kind of a, a weird aspect. Food and wine pairing is much less black and white than we all would like it to be. It's much more gray. And um, one thing I always talk about with food and wine pairing is um, the guests' preferences and what they're feeling and wanting at that point always trumps everything else. Unless, unless it's like a tasting menu, but if they, I always had to serve, a lot of times when I was over at the Marriott, um, businessmen would come in and get a really nice cut of fish, and then they wanted a Cabernet. And no matter how much you argued with them, they wanted their Cabernet and they wanted their fish independent of each other. So I'd always get my little poke in and I would sneak them a glass of white wine, which was usually Riesling on the side, and they'd drink it and be like, what the hell is this? And I'd show them the bottle and it was dry Riesling, like, no way, Riesling's sweet. So that was always my way of kind of sticking it to the man in, uh, in food pairings. Um, all right, so sparkling wine real quick. What are some good sparkling wine pairings? One of them is if I'm on death row and I have to have my final meal, I would have this in sparkling wine, which would, hmm? Oysters? Not for, I love oysters and I love oysters in sparkling wine, but mine is actually like good French fries and champagne. Um, so fried food does really well. Fried chicken. Um, chicken and waffles, weirdly. I highly recommend it. Go get some champagne and chicken and waffles. Um, anything else with bubbles? Popcorn? Yeah, I like that. Um, what would you pair, and this is tough, with the Prosecco as opposed to um, the British bubbles? Because the Prosecco, remember, is like fruit forward and sweet. So you could do some stuff that might have some spice. You could do dishes that maybe have a fruit component to it. Um, poke is something that Prosecco for me a lot of times works with, with some of the like, the, the savory and sweet nature that plays in those dishes. So it's always fun to think about those things, especially with sparkling, because so often sparkling gets grouped into one small box. Let's drink it on New Year's, and uh, it's usually just gonna be a bottle of Moet. 
and slowly but surely we're going to convert the rest of the world to drinking a wide variety of sparkling, um, but um, we're not there yet. Uh, let's see, let's go back to the whites. So we had comment that uh, wine one has elevated acid. Does everybody agree? Did it make your mouth water? Did it continually make your mouth water? That's a sign of acid and acid can sometimes come in two different ways. Like think about Sauv Blanc, it's citrus. It's like biting into a lemon or a lime or grapefruit. And then there's more so in this wine where it's almost like a sour green apple where it's not as direct and like hits your palate in a direct manner, but you still continue to have your mouth water and there's a sense of kind of tartness to the wine. Um, what about, so we talked about wine three is, is, you guys said there's sugar. Does everybody agree that wine three has sugar? Okay, so what is helping that wine to not taste cloying and sweet? Because it doesn't taste overly sweet, does it? There's just a touch of, of sugar to it. Is there anybody uh, who wants to? The acid actually, they're correct. It's not super high on the, the grape. Very rarely gets super high acid. There's something else that almost um, manifests itself, I guess, a little bit in a way of an acidity, and it's back to the kind of Pinot Grigio thing. What do we say about Pinot Grigio? Yes, bitterness. So if you pay attention to this Gewurztraminer, shit, there you go. There's what it is. <laughs> It's awesome. So if you pay attention to this, yeah. Anyway, so it's, um, it's got what's called phenolic bitterness. So it's hidden a little bit by the sugar. It doesn't taste as bitter, but that's what cleans the wine up a little on the back end. If you let it just, after you swallow it, just sit there, you feel almost like a little type of, if you were to swallow an aspirin dry on the back of your throat, it's a little bit of bitterness. And that bitterness acts like acid in Gewürztraminer. It's not, the, it's not the sharp citrus acid or green apple, it's the bitterness that helps in the structure with this wine and allows it to work with, uh, honestly, I like bitterness with, with rice dishes or noodle dishes. We're talking about pad thai, um, uh, curry, things like that. Uh, and then it helps that, what, what are some of the hallmark characteristics of Gewürztraminer for those who don't know? We're talking about a very aromatic wine, right? So floral, smells like your grandmother's powder closet a little bit. Um, perfumey, yep. And so if you wanna get um, deep into the chemistry side of it, you talk about Gewürztraminer as a grape that is high in a compound called terpenes. And that's a group of compounds. That's what they use terpenes in perfume production. They use terpenes in soap and they can manifest themselves as um, rose or as geranium or as lilac or violets or citrus blossoms, um, but Gewürztraminer always has, does everybody know what lychee is? That exotic kind of Asian fruit. Um, if you ever get a chance to try one, it's like deadpan for Gewürztraminer, you'll never forget it. Uh, and then typically uh, there's a very distinct rose characteristic to uh, Gewürztraminer. This also has something else to it that is a product of region and vintage and climate um, that adds to the aromatic profile as well as the texture. It's, uh, anybody want to guess before I tell you what it is? Anybody, ever, I'm sure you guys have heard of botrytis or noble rot, the mold that sets in on dessert wines like uh, late harvest Rieslinger or um, late harvest Gewürztraminer or Sauterne from Bordeaux. So it's, uh, for those who don't know, it's literally a mold that starts to appear on the outside of the grape and it essentially sucks out some of the water and makes the wine or the grape juice more glycerol, so more rich and like textured, uh, and gives it almost like a gingery, smoky honey um, kind of character to it. So this wine has botrytis on it. Um, and if you were to have a couple other examples, you could probably start honing in on what botrytis brings to the table. Um, 
and uh, it's a hallmark of this region. So this is Gewürztraminer from Alsace in France. Um, that's also part of why there's just a touch of RS because in Alsace it's a little bit of the Wild West in that you really don't know unless you know producers where you're going to be at residual sugar wise. So if you're looking at a wine list and you see some Alsace whites and you're like, oh, you know, everybody says Alsace is dry. It's not necessarily the case and that's kind of the problem that Alsace has been having. They make wonderful wines but there's no consistency in, in what type of residual sugar you're going for. So if you wanted bone dry, this would be a little disappointing. Um, but if you're wanting exotic and a little bit of, of residual sugar, this wine's phenomenal. Uh, Counterintuitively too, Gewürztraminer ages really well. I was just telling Raphael, um, if you ever get the chance to try 15 or 20 year old Gewürztraminer, it's pretty cool because what happens like with sweet Riesling when it ages? Anybody know? Anybody had some? So it doesn't, the residual sugar doesn't go away. It's not like it has less, but for whatever reason, the, the way the wine tastes, it tastes drier. So if you have like a 20 year old Riesling, let's say a cabinet or an off dry style Riesling, it tastes almost like a dry white at that point. It's pretty crazy. And the chemistry is, is beyond my uh, measly science degree to understand, but I just know when I've had it and have had discussions on it, it's one of those freak anomaly things in the wine world. Um, all right, let's talk about wine too. Somebody, I think, mentioned it, but there's something very distinct about this wine as to why it was put in the flight. Why is this wine not like the others? Say it loud, say it proud. Yeah, so it's got oak to it, right? Anybody pick that up and smell toasted barrel or, or think about bourbon or Napa Cab or, um, I mean, even any kind of whiskey. A lot of times, sometimes Crown Royal, when it's a little more subtle, has that vanillin thing. This has vanillin. This also, to me, has a lazy component to it. It's got more of that marshmallow, creme fraiche kind of character. Um, what's the fruit like in this wine? Is it tart, like wine one? Is it exotic, like wine three? Overripe. And are we, care to venture any kind of camp, like citrus, stone, pomaceous, like apples and pears, tropical? Yeah, that's a good call. Yep, yeah, I'm okay with that. Is it just apples and pears or is there some tropical? I'm leading you guys with that, so just go yes. <laughs> yeah, so the way this wine was made, interestingly enough, we talked about combining vessels. So this is a wine that spent time in oak, but they also kept a portion in stainless steel. So that's where some of the like brightness of fruit on the palate comes from it remaining in stainless steel. So that's kind of cool to see. Anybody want to uh, guess the grape? I'm sure you, most of you know it already. Say again. Chardonnay. Yep, Chardonnay. Anybody care to guess where it's from? Nope, not Sonoma. Yeah? Who said Australia? Well done. So this is uh, from just north of Sydney. So this is Australian Chardonnay. And so typically they have a little more brightness, a little less of the like overt, um, like Rombaueriness of California Chardonnay where it gets all bakery and all baked fruits. Uh, and, and so that adding a little bit of stainless steel Chardonnay is something you see common in Australia. Um, so that one was hopefully tipping you guys off on what oak brings to the table um, and then different fruits with oak. And then wine one is really tough. Um, you feel anybody who cares has a, like has a strong guess? Dry Riesling. Dry Riesling, okay, that's a guess up here. Anybody else? It's not, so uh, not a wine that's on everybody's radar all the time, but it is uh, Chenin Blanc. So that's where the higher acid is. That's where the, the kind of flintiness to it. You guys were talking about Lee's character, uh, I think. So this wine has an element of Lee's to it. 
um, but it has that apple pear character. Um, and I think it is a good example of a neutral white that's still refreshing and easy drinking. Um, this is actually South African Chenin Blanc. Um, so it's not quite, where's Chenin Blanc famous from? Loire. Yeah, the Loire Valley in France. Uh, usually those examples, this would be a much more leaner style from there. It's more, it gets into that apple juice camp where it's a little more oxidative is the term. Um, you know, when an apple browns, wine kind of when certain grapes have that same kind of effect where it almost smells apple juicy. Um, but Chenin always has good acid. And good acid is great when you're uh, pairing wines at a table. It gives you a lot of versatility because acid will help make up for some shortcomings elsewhere. So that's why champagne is really versatile. That's why Riesling, as you said, is really versatile. Um, what else can I tell you about these wines? Gonna keep track of where I'm at timing-wise. Um, Chenin, for the most part, is fair game. Uh, CMS-wise, you're looking more in your um, typical French styles. Getting into South African Chenin is a little more difficult. Um, that's more W set, that's more master level. I don't think you guys would see it if you were taking a, a certified um, exam. Like I said, W set, the reason I say that is they do a lot of comparatives. They'll say, you have one grape from six different regions, what is it? And you can usually go through them and all of a sudden, oh, there's the Vouvray. All right, so I'm probably dealing with Chenin. And then you work out from there saying, all right, well, where are these other Chenins from? Is it Sauvignon? Is it uh, Northern California? Is it South Africa? And that's where your, your theory backs up where people actually grow and make Chenin. Um, I'm a big fan of Chenin, more so in this style, less so in the, in the Vouvray style. Um, but that's something to be aware of and be careful of if you're looking to add a Chenin on your list that there is a stylistic spectrum to it. Um, questions for me right now? What did you guys think of the wines? Who liked, uh, who liked wine one? Nice. What about wine two? Nice. I was about to say, does anybody admit to being a Chardonnay fan? Um, and there's not to say, I, I drink Chardonnay all the time. So, uh, and then wine three. Nice. Very cool. Rafa told me on Hush Hush over here that he doesn't think he can ever drink Gewürztraminer in any capacity. So you all should look down your nose at him and be like, shame on you. Um, uh, all right, uh, no questions, then I think we'll... Guys, don't be afraid to ask any questions. If you think you have a question in your mind, you can start somebody else has a similar question also. Yeah, and all questions are fair game. Please, I would, I would, it's not, there's nothing that's too uh, in your head. If you're thinking it's a dumb question, I've probably asked it at some point. So that's how you learn. Yes, sir. So two things, a lot of times California Chenin will have oak. So you'll see a little of what you see in the, um, the second wine, wine two. Um, when it doesn't, it still to me has a little more of that open kind of opulent apple and pear character and then edges into kind of tropical. Whereas South African Chenin, there's a waxiness to it. There's a honeyed, what you had was a very young, very almost like lean borderline, uh, I would call it reductive style. So it's very, that flintiness, when you picked it up and it almost smelled kind of smoky, that to me is a little bit of a factor of it being young and reductive. It's a screw cap wine, full disclosure, so that holds on to that, that um, flinty quality longer than a cork would. Um, but uh, I also think California would have a little more weight and alcohol, possibly. And that's huge overarching stereotypes. There's always uh, counterpoints to each. You know, I can give you a, an oaked South African, I can find you some lean Californian. That's part of the fun of 
California is in a really cool uh, point right now with with some people pushing the envelope. It's nice to see not just not that I don't love Cabernet and Chardonnay, but it's nice to see Chenin Blanc and Dry Riesling and Gruner Veltliner and um, whether you're pro or con on the natty wine movement, it's people drinking wine, um, which is great. It, it increases the footprint of, of people enjoying that beverage. And so um, it's kind of fun to see the renaissance of California going on. It's exciting. Not that it's, not that it's cheap. I don't know if California wine will ever be cheap, but that's California. You guys live here. You know it. Um, other questions? Otherwise, we'll get started with the reds. Yes, that's a question of um, guests saying, I love sweet wines, and you have wine number three on your menu. Um, how that's, do you approach that conversation with the guests? That's one of my favorite loaded questions, because you guys have probably all experienced this. What is their definition of sweet? You know, and so I always follow up with, well, what sweet wines do you like? And it'll be like, oh, I love Napa Cab. And it's like, oh, okay. So I know we're dealing with, you like fruit forward style wines, or oh, I love, you know, Blue Nun. Okay, so you actually do like Sweet Riesling. So then I can play with, you know, the Gewürztraminer. Um, so it's, it's engaging and having the, a couple of key questions that can point you in the right direction. One of the ones that's always most helpful for me is asking them what they like to drink normally. You know, what do you drink at home? If you're having a special occasion, what's your favorite wine? And that'll give you insights into what they like from a palate standpoint, what they're enjoying. And it'll kind of give you an idea too, is if you can push them a little bit and take them out of their comfort zone. Um, based on, on how they respond to that. That's always something that's been successful for me. Um, so did that answer your question? Uh, the trick with, with Gewürz though, is some, the floral part can be polarizing. Some people uh, effing love, and I don't want to cuss because he's putting me on, on, I'm being recorded as I say this. Um, so I'm also from Utah, so effing is a normal part of my verbiage. Um, uh, Tarantes is a polarizing grape. Those of you who had it, it is so floral. It is like I tripped and face planted in a, in a like just a potpourri um, box. And for me, that's very off-putting. But for some people, it is really pleasing that it's that vibrant and that intense. And that's where those conversations are, are important. Because as you know with food, you know, you may love Wagyu beef. I may hate it. Um, doesn't mean it's bad. Um, but in the wine world, for whatever reason, points and somebody's professional opinion, um, whether it's mine or Robert Parker's, this wine's supposed to be good, I'm supposed to like it. No, if you don't like it, you don't like it. That's your own opinion. Um, hopefully that answered that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's see, so now we're gonna start into reds. Um, we've got three reds for you guys. Um, and then we'll talk about those. Uh, anything I'm missing as far as going over the wines and going over blind tasting of it that I didn't touch on for you guys, I'm trying to hit as much as I can. Um, but if there's something that comes up that you were wanting to have touched on, uh, please do let me know. This flight of reds is similar to the whites in that there's, there is uh, an attempt to um, access a broad amount of diversity. Because uh, especially if you're looking into a wine program, you do want to have diversity for access for your food. But you also want to have a focus with your food. But then in the end, it's about selling bottles. So you need to find things that make sense for your guest. And I think that's an important thing to think about too. Just because I like high acid reductive Shenan doesn't mean the world likes it, right? Like if you were to have me sit down before I had you guys in here and said, which white wine is gonna be the preferred of the three, there's no way in hell I would have picked the Gewürztraminer, but that had the most hands up, so that's awesome. That's cool, I, I, I dig that, that you guys chose that wine. Um, and that's also kind of the like eye-opening, you never know with the wine world, you think you do and you don't. Um, so 
Um, and now I completely lost my train of thought as to where I was going with that. <laughs> um, when you're putting a program together, it's good to have diversity, but it's also uh, hopefully you're able to have an understanding of your clientele and what'll move the dial and what'll um, sell through. Because in the end, that's what's gonna keep you in your position. And you can have those things that interest you, whether it's Gruner Veltliner from Austria, but you're in a steakhouse, you maybe don't need eight Gruners. Maybe you can have two, and if you show an ability to sell it or get your sommelier team excited and you can move it, you can add another one on. But obviously in a steakhouse, your drivers, your movers that pay the bills, more often than not are hardy reds. And so it's important to recognize those things and understand uh, where and how you're, you're uh, making money because you're in the business at that point of making your restaurants money. Um, you're in the business of, of taking care of your guests too, so hospitality is, is every bit as important, but that's the that's the, the balls you have to juggle being a person who um, is possibly in charge of a wine program. Um, excuse me. I'm curious with these as to how you guys will, uh, um, what you'll think of them, because it's a, it's a fun little grouping of wines. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna put you guys on the spot, I think, and have you throw some descriptors out there once we get all of them poured. Um, beyond that, Trying to think what I can talk about to, to fill the time. What are some fun pairings people have had that have really surprised you? Anything in particular? I always like this question because there's always crazy off-the-wall things that come out. Nothing? What's everybody's favorite pairing with tacos? San Diego, tacos are relevant. If you can't take beer and you can't take cocktails or you can't take your White Claw, you have to take wine, what are you taking? Tempranillo? With tacos, nice. Even with spicy tacos? Oh, I like it. Okay. Okay, very cool. And Tempranillo, like going Rioja, going Spain? Or, nice. I like that. Any others? Or is everybody just a beer and taco person? True. Very true. Fish tacos? All right, so what's fish taco? Albarino. I'm okay with that. That's easy. What's that's pedestrian? Give me something aggressive. Pro progressive. Hmm. I like that. How many people in here have dabbled in the in the natty wine world? Have have gone to like Vino Carta or the Rose or some of the places in San Diego that are really big advocates for for natural wine. No, not so many of you. Not intentionally. Well, they're both they're both great places. I um I have a hard time with some natty wines because there's a certain flavor, and I don't like to talk about it because it's going to be off-putting for some. But it, it also is funny to say this because it's not like I've eaten it, but it reminds me of like a gerbil or a, like a mousy character, and then the immediate response after that is the hell or do you know how a mouse tastes like? But for whatever reason, that flavor profile, I've marked it as that's apparently what a gerbil or a mouse tastes like. And with certain natural wines, it like is the most pervasive thing in my mouth. I don't know why. And everybody's susceptible differently. So like my mousiness that makes me crazy, you may not even experience it. And so that's where natty natural wine is crazy because somebody would be like, this is the greatest glass of wine ever. And it's really vibrant. And then you take a taste of it. And for me, it's after you uh, sip it and swallow. And then it just builds in your mouth from the back. And it's like, I want to take my tongue and just scrape it off of it and find whatever I, Amaro I can to get the taste out. And it's, it's a weird thing, but um, 
I've never had a hamster, but this flavor is, it's like, it's like animal and I've heard people describe it and I've read articles about it. And what's interesting is there's not a ton of science behind it, but what they have seen and, and figured out is apparently it's an interaction with the chemistry in your mouth. So for whatever reason with me, it really manifests itself very strongly and I can't, I can't handle it. It's more off-putting than cork uh, taint or oxidation or, or like uh, wine starting to turn to vinegar. For whatever reason, that for me is really strong. So like some of you in here are probably really, uh, cork taint might be really offensive and you can't even deal with that. I can pick it up really accurately, but it's not, I don't find it pleasing, but if I had to sip a wine to confirm it, it wouldn't kill me. Whereas some of the natural wines like that, um, for my palate personally, are rough and I'll just, I'll go to, I mean, White Claw or, or whatever to, to not have to drink that wine and it's sad. Um, but that's that's part of that new kind of niche that I don't know a whole lot about. Um, is there a connection to like a Brett? A strain of Brett? I'm not sure. Um, I don't think so because Brett for me, I can pick up in a lot of wines and I can pick it up when it's out of whack and I can pick it up when it's very pleasing. Um, that's not to say it might not be connected to Brett, but everything I've read is uh, linked it elsewhere. And like I said, it's it's a connection between whatever's in the wine and, and the chemistry in your mouth. Does everybody know what Brett is when we say Brett? He's not a dude that hangs out and helps make wine. It's a chemical compound called Brettanomyces. Um, it's actually very relevant in, in San Diego because what is everybody's favorite beer? Brett-infused beers or sour beers. Um, I learned how to blind uh, Bordeaux pretty accurately by my brother-in-law being very into sour beers. I would um, have the sour beer and then go to tasting group and pick up a wine and be like, what the hell, that smells like the beer we had last night and made the connection that um, Bordeaux in particular uh, has uh, elements of Brett that are common and like, have, a, have a similar shared flavor profile to a lot of stuff you see in sour beers. So that's one of those cool like gap jumping things that I, I, I dig um, in that it helped me become really proficient at identifying Bordeaux when there wasn't other characteristics that stuck out. Um, the Brett thing jumped out. Uh, we'll go him first and then you. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and Band-Aid-like in a, in a minor capacity, you can get all the way to um, like borderline barnyard, which is, smells like horse shit, like, sorry. Um, but in, in Bordeaux, it's a lot of times it's that clovey kind of Band-Aid-y um, character, the like rubber synthetic part of it, but it, it hides well in Bordeaux to where it's not off-putting, um, almost like it hides well in a lot of the beers. Um, uh, and they, what's funny is like some of the most expensive wines on the planet, like has everybody heard of DRC, Domaine de la Romani Conti? They have what's called expensive Brett. So that's where you get into the like strains of it. And so for them, it adds like an exotic, exotic kind of spice character. How they manage it, I have no idea, but those wines have Brett and they are thousands of dollars a bottle. And so for somebody who's, it's always funny, they're like, no, I don't drink anything with Brett. You want some DRC? Hell yeah, I do. Like that's kind of the funny anomaly of, of of uh, the world of Brett is pretty broad. And the beer world has helped open my eyes to it a little bit and understanding it better. It used to be people would say Brett and I would be like, oh yeah, that's what you're talking about. I pick up Brett and in my head I'm going, I don't know what they're identifying. And so um, that's also the nice part of things like this. When you taste with people, somebody will pick it up and be like, oh, that's volatile acidity. And you're like, what the what? It smells like nail polish remover. You're like, oh yeah, it smells like a nail salon. Or it smells like, um, somebody the other day said, model airplane glue. So if you ever pick up an Italian red like Barolo 
or Brunello and smell either a nail salon or model airplane glue, whichever clicks with you, that's, called, that's VA or volatile acidity. Um, and it's something common in Italian wines. Um, all right, you guys all have reds in front of you. I've been yapping. Let's let you taste some reds. So go through those. We'll take a couple minutes and then we'll talk some more. Okay, so from a blinding standpoint, uh, the easiest, most broad strokes are who's the lead singer of the band? Is it fruit or is it earth? Anybody know why that's the case? What does that denote right out of the gate typically? Old world, new world, exactly. With old world being generally earth driven and new world being fruit driven. Um, other things I would look for, intensity of color, whether you're dealing with a thin skin varietal or thick skin. So what that means is the grapes, um, you know, like Sangiovese is a very thin skin varietal. So the wines often tend to be lighter in color, more ruby tones, and they have like some browning on the edge because Sangiovese oxidizes a little more. Um, whereas Cabernet, for example, tends to be almost opaque, like uh, whole milk and holds a really deep dark purple, almost blue, and the rim is like um, uh, a deeper purple. Uh, Malbec being an even more extreme example of that. Malbec's rim is like neon blue purple um, with lots of color. So those would be thick skinned varietals. So when you look at, it doesn't mean necessarily the size of the grape is huge. Cabernet is often pretty small, but it's like the breakdown of the grape as far as the inside of it is mostly skin and a little bit of juice. And so that's how they can get so much color um, and uh, with that flavor from the grape skins and Cabernet, but you have to be careful because what comes with that? Bitterness um, and sometimes green flavors. Um, then that's nose and sight. Uh, nose, I would obviously fruit versus earth. Uh, a little tougher thing is, is there oak or not? Um, are there any impact compounds? Um, so aromatic identifiers that would get your world very small very quickly. Um, anybody know impact compounds? We talked about one earlier with the Gewürztraminer um, that was a family of them. What did we talk about with Gewürztraminer? Remember the word? Yeah, terpenes, which are floral uh, components. So any other compounds you guys know off the top of your head? There's the, there's the P word that everybody knows. Pyrazines. What are pyrazines? When you smell bell pepper or jalapeno in like Bordeaux or Cabernet or Cab Franc from the Loire Valley. That is a chemical compound that is inherent to the Bordeaux family of grapes. So um, Carmenere has tons of pyrazine. Uh, Merlot, pyrazines, uh, they don't always do the bell pepper thing. It ends up being more um, ferny, if that makes sense. If you've ever had ferns, Merlot has kind of like a plum and chocolate and fern thing. Uh, that's what makes Merlot a little tougher to blind. Cabernet is always bell pepper. Um, uh, Malbec, to a lesser extent, can have pyrazines, but it's not as readily apparent. Cab Franc is always like a roasted pepper thing to me. Um, I can usually, and this is all personal because your palate is your own, uh, like Chinon from the Loire Valley, I can usually pick up at a thousand yards because it's such a unique signature of pyrazines, red fruit, and some floral and herb that I'll often be able to just pick up the glass and be like, that's Cab Franc, let's move on, um, without having to, just because for whatever means it sticks out like a sore thumb. Um, one of the most infamous for pyrazines is New Zealand Sablon uh, because of the way they farm it, because of the way they make it. And my personal marker for it is not one I would recommend ever using at a table, but for me it smells like grapefruit and Cool Ranch Doritos. Um, 
you take the bag of Cool Ranch and it's those dried peppers that they use to season it. And for whatever reason, New Zealand Sauv Blanc, I pick it up and I'm reminded of being like a 10 year old, just crushing a bag of Cool Ranch Doritos. Um, and that's, that's a personal marker. That's something like you guys have seen the movie Ratatouille. You know, scent is tied to memory and is very strong when you have some sort of experience to tie into it. So um, that's, that's what's nice too. If you guys pick up a glass of wine and you're all of a sudden reminded of a place, um, explore that a little bit and see if you can isolate what it is. Like, oh, this reminds me of grandma's house. Well, is that because there was a pie in the window? And you're thinking about like baked cherry pie kind of thing? Or is it because there was perfume? And it always, you know, like the Gewürztraminer. So it's always fun to think about those things and what about it gave you that memory and that reaction that it had stuck in your head. I always like to play that game. Um, then on the palate, structure is always important. What is structure? So we talked about acidity, body, so the weight of the wine. Um, what has become more important lately is texture. So it's a hard one to define because it's so personal. But like everybody talks about Merlot as velvety. They talk about Sangiovese and Nebbiolo is astringent. Um, they talk about um, Pinot Noir is silky. Um, and so finding, that's a really hard one because you have your own personal markers for that, but tasting with other people and somebody saying, oh, this is a really silky Pinot Noir can help you kind of hone in and figure out, oh, that's when they're talking about silky, that's what they mean. Because to me, texture is one of the most personal aspects of wine tasting that doesn't have the widespread effect. I can tell you pyrazines and give you a couple and you'll pick it up real quick, but velvety texture takes a minute to kind of understand what that means in a broad scope. Um, uh, we said acid, we said uh, alcohol is a key important factor. Um, new world or old world wines tend to have higher alcohol? New world, correct. Generally, and that's a very general statement because that's starting to get blurred more and more now. Um, you know, it, it started a little bit with, uh, does I remember, In Pursuit of Balance, the initial kind of like wine hipster movement of let's make a bunch of California wines at 11.5 alcohol. Um, so you're starting to see New World wines dial back a little bit, and Old World, they're starting to get better and better at farming and viticulture and getting a little bit more warmth. So the alcohol thing isn't as sure of a bet as some of the other factors. Um, we didn't finish on impact compounds. There's two others I want to talk about. So I said pyrazines, you mentioned one other. Yeah, Rotundone. Anybody know what Rotundone is? So it's peppery aroma. So when you think not bell pepper, but like black pepper, white pepper, peppercorn, fresh cracked pepper, that's called Rotundone. Uh, anybody care to, uh, anybody know a grape that they've experienced Rotundone with? Yep, Syrah. Syrah has it in spades. Um, it's not often though as direct as like pyrazines. Some people, Apparently there's a section of the world that can't pick up Rotundone, but I also feel like there's a section that miss it because it's more heady. Like the black pepper thing, if you've had steak au poivre a lot or served that a lot, you'd understand black pepper being heavy. But I always, it took me a while to hone in on Rotundone because I was expecting it to be more direct, like pyrazines and, and terpenes that we're talking about. It took me a while to get what black pepper brought to the table in kind of like a heady aroma. But once I got it, man, it stuck out like a sore thumb, especially in like old world Syrah. Um, any other grapes, any white grapes that have Rotundone? We mentioned it earlier, Gruner Veltliner. Gruner is often talked about as a savory grape. It has a spiciness to it. So white pepper's in there, but there's also, and I, this is part of the reason I love Gruner, there's like radish and lentil and, and kind of green bean characters. So it's not just your, you know, your, your fruit and acid, it's got layers to it. And I find Gruner very fun in that regard, especially with pairing. Um, Another one that's a little more difficult, they talk about thiols. That's a little more complicated. That's like grapefruit. 
So like there's there's only a couple of grapes that have grapefruit character. Um, uh, Saab Blanc, uh, Gruner Veltliner to a lesser extent, Albarino to a little bit of an extent. Um, but anytime you think about Saab Blanc, think about having grapefruit juice. And that's a marker that can help you in blind tasting. If you can isolate and are really good at identifying grapefruit, um, there's that's a that's style and there's only a few grapes that are identified with that. I'm trying to think if I missed anything else. Um, talk about structure. Um, and then at that point, when you're trying to deduce, it's really driven by theory and, and experience. What you've tasted from where, and have you had a Tempranillo from you know, Lodi and from uh, Oregon and from uh, multiple parts of Spain, Rioja, um, Ribeiro Duero, to understand what the stylistic differences may be. Uh, and that just comes with experience and time working on it. Um, Roth, anything else I missed that you're thinking of? Let's talk about the reds, because we got to do fortifieds after this, and I don't want to waste too much of your guys' time. Um, so reds, uh, what, were you guys what were you guys' initial easy thoughts on it? Just real quick, anything that jumped out with the flight? Three more oxidized. Is three more oxidized? Yeah, uh, yeah that's a, I'll, I'll allow that. Hopefully I won't have the Freudian slip like the Gewürztraminer and be like, and it's um, But yes, there is an oxidative quality to three. Um, yes. Full on barnyard on three. You're being so nice. Go ahead, let it out, like let loose. I felt like I was literally in like a horse Do you have any ties previously to working on a farm or in a barnyard? That's awesome, so that's a very personal thing. So you, I was about to say, you would be more susceptible to it whereas somebody else who maybe is from the city would have to dig or it smells like, I don't know, you walk past a, I don't, I can't think of anything positive right now. <laughs> But barnyard, I mean, I don't find it offensive in the wine, right? It's, it's there and it's very, it's very prevalent. So that's good. Oxidation in barnyard. So if you were to venture a guess, old world, new world, probably old world, right? There's a lot of other things that are in line with that. It's not overtly sweet. There is fruit, but it's not as fruity as uh, maybe some of the other wines or one of the other wines. If you were to call one um, blatantly new world, which would it be? Wine one. Okay. Okay, wine one and wine two. All right, uh, let's let's make your arguments. Who thinks uh, wine two is new world? And wine one? All right. Well, you're both actually right. They're 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 both new world. Um, wine two. There's other parts of it that were important. Uh, so, um, but that's why I put wine three after wine two because I wanted you to have. Um, fruit on your palate to then lead into barnyard to, for a dramatic effect. Wine three is more structured, right? We didn't talk about tannins at all. Tannins, that's a how deep down the rabbit hole do you want to go? I'm still every day trying to learn more about tannins because you start getting into, and we talked about texture a little bit, tannins, whether it's like uh, Sangiovese or Nebbiolo, so Brunello or Barolo, wickedly tannic, like dries your mouth out so intently. But then you have things like, um, like a really elegant Grenache or Pinot Noir where the tannins are very soft and subtle. And then you can start getting into refinement of tannins when you incorporate wood with like Bordeaux and Napa. And whether they're velvety or they're, they're um, longer tannins or how they evolve as it ages. Tannins a very complex category. But three, I think, has the most open amount of tannins of any of the three wines. Would you guys agree? Okay. What wine do you think is the oakiest? So we've got a vote over here for two. Anybody think one or three? 
No? So the consensus is two? You guys are just gonna, gonna follow? Two? You think three? Okay. So we've got one vote for three, we've got one vote for two. Anybody wanna have a vote for one to even it out? Two is the okiest. So two spends a little under 20 months in um, things that are important with oak, the percentage of new oak, and then the length of time. So this spends 20 months in oak, 20% of that is new. That's different from like a Napa Cabernet that spends 20 months in oak and 100% is new. That's where you start digging in the, this smells like Maker's Mark category, where it's just straight bourbony and there's like pecan and caramelized uh, nuts and smoke. This has uh, a oaky aspect to it of it, but it's not like an 11, you know, like, like a, I, I reference Napa Cab a lot, or like sometimes Young Bordeaux or Rioja can be. Um, so 20% of new oak is actually a good amount. That's why you can smell it on this. A lot of wines hover in that if they're going to put new oak on it, 20 to 40%. There's a couple reasons. New oak is expensive. If you're doing French oak, it's like $1,600 a barrel and you figure you get 25 cases of wine from a barrel. So that will let you do the math as far as how that affects your, your P&L sheet for that individual wine. Um, you typically, when you hover in that range, it's right about a third, right? So usually they'll get two to three uses out of a barrel. So you always have one third of your wine being new oak, one third of it in second use barrels, one third of it in third use. This is getting more to like business side of the winery and what works. Not everybody has the, the cash flow of say like a Harlan or a, um, you know, uh, um, uh, Opus One where they can do 100% new oak every year. They have to manage it and they have to manage it across wines and it's probably the most expensive item on their P&L sheet independent of the fruit depending on where you're getting the grapes. So oak is a big deal. If you're a winemaker and you screw up what they're trying to go for with oak, you're probably not gonna have a job the next year. So it's, it's a very important part of the palate and understanding how a wine is made. Um, Wine one does have oak, but it's not a ton of new. There's a part of wine one. Um, does anybody in here feel comfortable when I say this has stem contact? Like if you were to pick up a wine and be like, oh, that's stemmy. Does that mean anything to you? Or is it kind of like, oh, that's a cool new term. What the hell are you talking about? Grasp and understand. Yeah, grasp and understand. Yep. And you're seeing it a lot more in California. So what stemmy means, guys, is they're when they're letting the wines ferment, they're incorporating the stems. Why is that tricky? The stems ripen at a different pace than the grapes. They also, if you don't manage them properly, can make the wine really green and astringent. If you do it well, you add this nice element of spice, you add a really beautiful textural aspect to it, and it's like a satiny kind of thing. Um, you also help stabilize the color, which is important from a winemaker's standpoint, because if you're sending out, a, you know, a few thousand bottles of this wine, you want your color to stay consistent. You don't want somebody getting really light red and somebody getting heavy red and somebody getting orange. You want color to be stabilized across the board. That's why like um, another parallel across a different category, that's why cognac, for example, they allow uh, caramel in there because that's, you know, you're gonna have a, um, a bottle of Louis Trays here and a bottle of Louis Trays in Thailand and a bottle of Louis Trays in Vegas and they're all gonna be the same color. Uh, they're very, very sneaky about that in, in cognac in particular. Um, uh, but it's important, consistency, so when somebody sees Sonoma Couture Chardonnay, it's that same golden color everywhere they get it. They can trust in that and they have confidence in that. Um, uh, speaking of nail salon, somebody's taking nail polish off or something. Um, wine one, anybody care to guess the grape? I feel like it's one of the more 
at least for me, it would be obvious based on texture and weight. And we talked about stemminess. Yep. Say it loud. Yep, Pinot Noir. Did anybody have an argument for anything else or was everybody kind of in that Pinot camp? Any care to guess where? Based on the fact that I haven't given you any fastballs all day. So if you guess California, I'm probably going to say no. Oregon's not a bad call. New Zealand. Yes. Well done. So this is a New Zealand Pinot Noir um, that has a little bit of new wood, so like less than 10% and a little bit of stem inclusion. So that black tea character, um, the subtle kind of spice notes that are more in um, almost into borderline herbal territory where it's like, it, for me, it's like a, like a bay leaf sage kind of thing. Um, that's, and this, the whole cluster in this is subtle. You go get a new Oregon wine from like Christum, for example, they always do whole stems. You pick it up and you're like, it smells like stems. And that's a good way. Or Domaine de la Cote, which is one that everybody sees a lot around here. They always do all stems. Um, wine two, guesses? Nope, not Pinot Noir. This one's a little deceiving. Not quite. One of its friends. So Grenache was the guess. Somebody say again. Nope. So if it was something to, that's a friend of Grenache, Morvedre's an option. What's the other one? Syrah. Syrah. So if it's Syrah from the New World with oak, and I'm not giving you anything from California typically, what is it? If it's not Syrah, it's Shiraz. Yep. So this is not Barossa Shiraz, which is where everybody is used to. This is from an area called Heathcote, um, which is over in Victoria. So Adelaide, or not Adelaide area, excuse me, um, Melbourne. Um, and it's fruit forward and has oak to it, but at the same time, it isn't over the top. Sometimes Barossas get really pinky and are uh, dark and colored and, and uh, uh, a little too high octane. Um, but what I wanted this was to give you guys an example of a Rhone variety in a fruitier style with a little bit of wood. So I don't think this is laden with um, Rotundone, the black pepper character. I think it's more menthol-y, but this is more about fruit and ripeness. All right, wine three, any guesses? Hmm? Kind of, almost. It, ha it has a Bordeaux variety in it. Um, this wine isn't really fair game in the slightest, but it was an old world style wine that I, when you started commenting on Barnyard and you said oxidation, um, it's not showing it a ton, but usually it'll have a little VA. Um, and the Barnyard to me also is a little bit of Brett. Um, it is uh, made in an old world style. It's, it's Cinso, Grenache, and a little bit of Cabernet, uh, actually from Lebanon. Um, so this is from Chateau Moussar. Uh, and was trying to put a old world savory wine for you guys without giving you straight old world. So that one wasn't really fair, but the, the points that came across that I wanted to come across did. Um, and we got to move it forward. I go over food pairings, but I got to get you guys to fortif or to the fortified wine. So everybody jump out your glasses real quick and uh, we're going to move into fortified wines, which should be um, a little quicker. Yeah, sorry guys, I apologize. So, how many of you guys actually have uh, Fortifieds on uh, or are part of uh, your program at all or in any capacity? Yeah, that's kind of what I expected. It's a. Uh, 
it's not a huge part of the the market. There's not a huge demand for it unless somebody in here has a, a counterpoint to that. It's it's fun to see it being played with in the cocktail capacity. I really like that, um, but it's not readily on the tip of people's tongue. They're just not asking for fortified wines in general. Like tasting menus, you have it built in, but you're not having somebody come in and have a glass of port or whatever. Um, so it's always interesting to hear ideas and how to incorporate it, um, whether it's relevant, but nonetheless, I wanted to touch on it for you guys just because if you are building a program, depending on what you're going for, it is relevant. And so understanding the differences in styles um, is, uh, is important across the categories because there is a lot. It's not just port, you know? Um, so I'll give you a couple of minutes. We'll be real quick with this uh, to just real quick nose and taste the glasses and give a, a guess. These are all very fair game classic. I'm not screwing with you on these. Um, and then we'll talk about them and move on and get you guys out of here. So when I call a wine fortified, what does that mean? Anybody know off the top of your head? Okay. Uh, arrested fermentation. So uh, go more layman terms, because if you're going to tell a table that, or they, they might not know what you mean. Uh, higher in alcohol, but um, they arrest the fermentation process with uh, a higher, higher alcohol, or higher proof alcohol. Higher proof alcohol. Saved by, <laughs> saved by the horn. All right, so. Uh, he is correct in saying that it involves arresting fermentation, so stopping fermentation. That's where your residual sugar comes from. They're stopping it at a certain point by adding typically neutral grape spirit, so clear, uh, unaged brandy, um, typically. And they, they add it in a ratio to bring the wine up to right around 20% alcohol. Um, that kills the yeast, and so that stops the fermentation at that point. And then depending on the style they're going for, and depending on what type of fortified wine you're talking about, it'll either age in barrel, or it'll age in bottle, or a little bit of both. Um, but it depends on what you're uh, talking about um, stylistically. But I just wanted to make sure you guys knew what fortified meant. So you're fortifying it, you're strengthening the wine with that neutral grape brandy. So, has everybody had a chance to try the three? Any guesses as to uh, number one? Mm -hmm. Ruby port is the first one. So what are the two styles of port if you were to go the very simplest? Ruby and tawny, exactly. So uh, if you were to guess based on, on color, if you've had them in the past, um, and so everybody's is looking a little more red, unfortunately, because we had red wine in our glass before, but um, which one would spend time aging in bottle more so, and which one would spend time aging in wood more so? Between ruby and tawny. Tawny in, correct, yep, and that's what gives it that color, because when it ages in bottle, typically if you have a vintage port, which is a ruby port, that's why it throws all that sediment and you have to decant it, or if you've ever seen somebody use port tongs, it spends really only two years in wood and then the rest of the time in bottle, whereas a tawny, like the one you're having, I believe is a 20-year tawny, so it, it's, it's going to be a blend of things that are like 15 years old up to 25, 30 years old to achieve a, a character profile of 20 years. But all that color is falling out in wood, so that's why it has that tawny or kind of amber color to it. That's why the flavors in it are different and more of a nutty tone, more of a um, maple syrup notes. There's subtle wood notes, not in the same way as you would have with like Napa Cab or Bourbon, but they are there. Um, so wine two is your tawny. It's a 20-year tawny. 
um, that may taste a little bit more oaky than it was because we're pouring it on the Shiraz, but whatever, you guys are professionals. Um, and so those are your two examples of port, and that's the easiest um, uh, first like demarcation from it is knowing the difference between a ruby and a tawny. And a ruby, when it's a vintage, is that vintage. So if you have 83 Wars port, it's all coming from 1983. Whereas a tawny, it's a 20-year tawny, it's blended with wines that are meant to taste in that um, style. It would taste like it was 20 years old. Make sense? Okay. Um, and it's fun to go if you ever get the chance across the like 10-year tawny, 20-year tawny, 30-year, 40-year and see what goes into it. It's really cool to see the evolution uh, as that goes. Um, all right, and so anybody care to make a guess on the third wine? Muscat? Okay. So like floral and aromatic? Any, any other guesses? It is not muscat. Sherry. Okay. Specific style of sherry. That's another, um, like, holy shit, they said the S word. Um, say again. I was about to say, does anybody want to find a sweet example of sherry? Because it certainly wouldn't be a, a fino or a manthanilla. It is not sherry. Hmm? No, it's not PX. Not enough color, man. PX is gnarly. This is Madeira. So what is Madeira? Madeira is um, supposedly what our country was built on. Uh, they toasted with Madeira at the, um, the Declaration of Independence signing. Uh, it was something that came about the island or archipelago of Madeira is off the north coast of Africa, but it's part of Portugal. And it became a famous stop on trips across the Atlantic. Um, they would buy barrels of Madeira and use them as ballasts on boats, make the cross Atlantic journey and get there. And at that point, it was like, well, this was wine when it started. I guess we'll sell it and be like, hey, this is Madeira. And um, in the end, it became this beverage that the colonists loved. And they're like, yeah, that's how we meant to make it. And so Madeira is exposed to everything that's bad for wine. Heat, oxidation, it is fortified. But Madeira is legendary for its aging capacity. You have Madeiras in market right now that are from the 1800s that are still fine. Uh, Madeira is great because you pop a bottle of it now. I could serve you the same bottle if we did this again next year be fine because it's just been it's been exposed to so much that it's essentially um, it, almost indestructible Madeira is crazy so you can buy a nice Madeira uh, and have like a 1970s Madeira on your back bar and pour a glass now for a guest and they come back in a year and pour them a glass again that's one of the nice things about a fortified program with Madeira um, is its shelf life whereas port is not the same way port you can get away with a couple of months if you keep it refrigerated but you can't. You should be tasting it to see where it's at. Whereas Madeira, you can be pretty comfortable that um, I've actually never tasted or have no, I haven't known a Madeira that's gone south. It usually gets drank. Um, Madeira is also one of my favorite things from a dessert standpoint, in that it's kind of like the Riesling or the sparkling of the dessert world. It has great acid. Do you guys feel that on your palate? It doesn't taste as sweet as the other two, and you you'd be okay with having another sip because it is. It's got acid to balance the sweetness. It's also got nutty characteristics. It's got some whiskey tones to it. Um, I like Madeira because you can do it with that chocolate, you know, flourless dark chocolate cake, but you can also do it with some sort of fruit tart. You can do it with any kind of nut-based dessert. You can have it on its own. Madeira was always a fallback when it came to pairings as um, the, the utility player, so to speak. Um, so this is Rainwater, which is one of the simplest styles of Madeira. Um, and uh, beyond that, 
Uh, Madeira is one that it's like, how deep down the rabbit hole do you want to go? If you start getting into it, it's a pretty cool uh, category. So um, questions. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. And Fortifieds, like I said, is, is um, uh, I don't think it was as important, at least for me, to talk to you guys about the other wines more so than this. So questions, concerns, comments? General, general questions um, uh, or comments? So this is a uh, rainwater. So it's this is more like five years. So it's not crazy. Whereas like um, we have uh, ten-year Madeiras labeled by grape that would have spent ten years in cask, and then we have some from the late '90s that have spent twenty years in cask. Um, but typically with Madeira, if there's an age statement on it, that has to be correct. It's not like port where it can be like a twenty-year. The ten-year Madeiras all have to be a minimum ten years. Um, yeah. And so this is more a factor of the aging. The island is tropical and crazy, and they put them up in, uh, like, essentially the top of a barn to get really humid. So Madeira can kind of have a parallel to whiskey, like in rickhouses, and where they age the barrels, and that determines whether it's Pappy Van Winkle or Elijah Craig, you know? Um, and, um, yeah, good question. Others? All right, otherwise, beyond that, guys, thank you very much for letting me just talk your ear off for an hour and a half. I really appreciate it. Hopefully you guys cleaned something and, and learned a little bit of information and yeah, very cool. I, I dig that you guys came out and... Other than the podcast, do you have other outlets where we can... As far as like media and whatnot? Uh, educational stuff. Whew, I just passed the MS, so I'm not there yet, I guess. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, I live down in, well, I live in San Marcos, but I'm part of the San Diego community, so I try to stay actively involved. I'm doing some stuff with SOMCON. Um, and good friends with this dude. So as much as I can help contribute, San Diego is very important to me. And so the big joke when I pass is like, when you leaving? And I'm, I'm not. I, I have two kids and live in San Marcos and don't plan on leaving. So I'm here for you guys in any way, shape, or form as a reference for exams. If you want to drink some wine with me, whatever. Like, so I, I, like I said, I enjoy proving my mentor wrong that San Diego is not a place where sommeliers go to die and that it's a great market. And so kudos to you guys for taking the time to better yourselves. So, cheers. Uh, I have cards if for whatever reason. Otherwise, Rafa has my information too. Um, and yeah, like I said, exam stuff, it's always nice to have perspective if you're pursuing any of that. So, I'm happy to help in that regard. I've, I've, for those of you who don't know the history, I was part of the class last year that passed the MS and got it taken away and then I repassed in September, so I've seen a whole gamut of, of various degrees of shit show. Um, and so I'm happy to, to help out in any way with whatever that uh, uh, encompasses. So, cool guys.